Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Nicole Davis. Nicole is the Executive Director of Operation Achieve Independence, or OAI, which is a program based in Spring, Texas, in the Houston area. Welcome, Nicole, to our podcast series. Thank you so much for joining and sharing about your organization. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. I'm excited to hear about your organization and the work you do there with youth. Before, however, we do that, I do want to just mention that for those who are listening, Operation Achieve Independence goes by the initials OAI, not to be confused with AOI, Yes, <laughs> Aging Out Institute. <laughs> so just know that they're very similar and we'll try to differentiate as best we can as we move forward. <laughs> All right. Well, that said, Nicole, could you please share a little bit about your background, where you came from and your journey that brought you to working with foster youth? Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a really good story. It's one of my favorite stories to tell because I was in college. I went to a, at the time it was a small Christian university called Abilene Christian. It is in West Texas and I was studying missiology. So I was going through the whole Bible program to be a missionary. And at the time I thought, okay, I know that, or I feel that I'm called to go to Thailand and work with young ladies who had been sex trafficked. And I decided in between my junior and senior year, I was, you know, I was supposed to have an internship of some kind. And what I ended up doing was I said, you know what, I think I want to go home. I want to go home to Houston and be with my family. I was engaged at the time. So I wanted to come home and sort of plan my wedding with my fiance and just get ready for my senior year. So I said, I'm going to see if I can find an internship at home. So what I ended up doing was I came home, everybody else was doing like in church mission work or working with youth groups and something just, it. I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to try and find something that's just a little bit different. So it's kind of how I found the nonprofit world. There was an organization in Conroe, Texas, and they served youth who had aged out of foster care. So their primary goal was at the time was to house them and to provide them with life skills training. And I said, this is really cool. I definitely want to be a part of this. So I went to the executive director at the time. It was a very small organization. And I said, I would love to intern with you. I don't need anything. I just, I want to learn about nonprofit. I want to learn about this particular field. I want to know what it is to work with youth who have aged out of care. And she said, absolutely. I will 100% take you on. And I ended up working with her for the summer. I learned so much from her. I am forever grateful for her mentorship to me. And from there, it just kind of, it completely spiraled out of control. I'm sure you know all of this because you're well acquainted with the nonprofit world. <laughs> it stole my heart. I couldn't yeah. picture myself doing anything else. I said, this is it for me. I don't want to move out of the country. I'm called to be domestic and stay here and do something here in Texas. So 
After that, I went back to school for a year and then I came back and was immediately employed by the same organization. So I think I graduated on a Saturday. I started working on Tuesday. <laughs> oh, you took Monday off. That's I nice. I took Monday <laughs> off. Yes. <laughs> I let myself move back home. <laughs> that's what I did with my Monday. So yeah, so that's how I ended up back in that field. So I worked at that organization for about three and a half years. And then I had my daughter. So I needed something at the time, I, you know, brand new baby. I needed something with a little more structure, something that was a little more nine to five. So I did. I went and worked for another organization, a very large nonprofit here in Texas. And I did some great work there where I kind of got acquainted with all the different pieces of nonprofit. So I wasn't just doing volunteer management. I was doing volunteer management and marketing and operations and program development. So I got to touch all of those other pieces by going to a larger organization. This organization did not serve youth who were aging out of care, but we were able to find some bridges there that made, you know, that kind of still connected me to that world. And then in 2022, I, at the very beginning of the year, I said, okay, I hear you, God. I know that it's time for me to go back into that world. So I knew a, another person, Tina James, who actually started Operation Achieve Independence her and I had known each other for quite some time. I sat on the board for OAI before I was employed. You know, we just, we met up for breakfast one day and I said, how are things going? Do you feel established? And do you feel like, you know, that the organization is moving forward? And she said, yeah, I mean, I feel like we're ready for the next step. And at this time I had quit my job. So I was not working at all. I just kind of took a leap of faith and I said, okay, I'm just going to be done working for a little bit did some hiking trips and did a little bit of travel and then decided it was time to jump back into work. Both of my kids were a little bit older. So at this time, I, you know, a year ago, I now have this flexibility to work from home and do all the things that I wanted to do to really start a nonprofit. And I did not start the nonprofit, but I was hired to help move it to the next step. So that's what I'm doing with Operation Achieve Independence. And it's how I ended up back in this world is just that I loved working for that other nonprofit so much. And it was in a different county. So we do serve the same county that that organization is in. But we're also here in the Houston area. And our services are pretty new for this, this area, the this school district, this college system. So I'm just excited to be a part of what's happening now with this and watching it grow from literally just an idea to what it is right now. Yeah, that's always exciting. I mean, you're not, you weren't there on the ground floor, but to be part of the growth, that would be exciting. Yeah. So I actually did get to be on the ground floor. I mean, when Tina thought of the organization, when she felt that God was calling her to start the organization, she texted me and one other person. She knew I was, you know, interested in this field and these young people. And so she did, she texted me immediately and said, this is what I want to do. And this is what I feel called to do. And so that was back in, I want to say that was 2016. And then she officially incorporated the organization in 2017. Oh, okay. That was going to be my next question. Yes. <laughs> so you were part of the ground floor. So it is kind of in a way, like you feel like it's your baby, right? You're watching it grow and starting to walk and run and all of that. Yes, 100%. Mm -hmm. I would say Tina and I are most definitely the parents, and we've had a great, 
board of directors who has just helped lead us to where we are right now. I don't know how we could have done it without their guidance and their input and, you know, just all of the different outside pieces that you need to really make an organization work. But yeah, I mean, Tina has graciously allowed me to step into what she created. So it's a massive blessing for me. I can't think of anything better that I could be doing with my time. Well, how many staff are there right now? We are a staff of one. I am one human being right now. But what you're doing is growing. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Got it. And so do you have volunteers? We do. Yes, we have. So our board of directors, a portion of them, I would say probably 20% of our board of directors, we have nine members. So two or three of them function as a intake committee. So whereas we would have staff kind of overseeing that portion, we have great you know leaders as our board who are getting to oversee that part. So they get to be the ones that say, you know, yes, we can absolutely serve this person or yes, we can serve this person, but, you know, with these things in mind as you move forward with them. So that's really great because that takes a huge load off of, you know, the just one person who's, I can't be the only one making decisions. So we have a great committee for that. We also, we partner with other organizations so we can provide certain services and they can provide certain services. That also helps tremendously because it's, again, it's, I can't do 100%, but if I can do 50% and they can do 50%, then it really makes the, it makes the world go round. Absolutely. How do you build those partnerships? Because I imagine some newer organizations might be a little bit at a loss as to how do you even begin creating those relationships? So how did you build the relationships with your partners? Yeah, it was not easy. Some of it was through nonprofit relationships that I held prior to my commitment to Operation Achieve Independence. So I knew quite a few people before just because I've been in the nonprofit world for almost 10 years now. So I had created some of my own relationships that that have carried through and I've been able to utilize them in my role here at OAI. But also just I'm kind of a bull not a bully. I will not bully, but I'm kind of a bull. So I'm like, hey, I really want to work with you. I'm very passionate. So I come in guns blazing and I'm like, okay, I'm ready to work with you. What can I do to help you? So I just, it, that really helps too, I think, because people appreciate when, like, yes, I am a small, we are a small organization, but when I go in and say, hey, I want to provide this service for you. I don't have housing, but you have housing. So what if I bring in life skills classes and you continue to do housing? And they're like, oh, wow, that's fantastic. And so from there, we just kind of set up a memorandum of understanding. And then they kind of understand what all that OAI can do for them versus, you know, what they can do for us, which housing is a huge piece. So that's our main partner is we usually find housing partners that we can come in and provide other services for the young adults while they provide the housing. Another way is we found that attending some of our local conferences has been very beneficial. We attended the Education Reach for Texans conference back in March of this year. And in doing that, really helped establish some relationships with our local college system and some of our school districts to where we're able to go in and say, you know, we would love to start working with your students at the age of 16 so that they understand some of the benefits that they can receive as far as education in Texas. 
And so it has helped when we cultivate those relationships at the conference level and they actually have the time to sit down and talk to us and they're not rushed to go to their next meeting or, you know, I'm sure you know how hard it is to reach out to other organizations and actually get meetings because we're all so busy and running around all the time. So it does help to have that conference sit down time. That has really helped. We were able to establish a great relationship, like I said, with our college system. So a lot of our youth that we're working with are actively using their Texas in-state tuition waiver because they're already in college and they just simply got our information from their college system. So that has been very helpful too, just to catch them, just to catch our partners at a time when they're not so bogged down with a million other things. That really helps to cultivate and create the new partner to partner relationship. Yeah, that's a great idea. I don't know if the chamber, local chamber of commerce could be a possibility as well, because there are nonprofits that join those organizations and go to those networking events too. Yes, we are in two of our local chambers. Tomball, which is just kind of right outside of our direct service area, I would say, and then also the Woodlands, and that's the same thing. They're north of us, and Tomball is west of us. At this stage, how many young people do you work with, let's say, in a year's time? In a year's time, we can serve upwards of about 45 to 50 youth, just depending on the actual service that they're receiving. Because we have two different programs that really, that often require funding, right? So we have transitional living support, which can provide them with maybe assistance with their light bill or maybe if they're short on rent. So in that program, it just kind of depends on how much the youth actually needs to spend. And then education and career prep, which is where we step in and we can help pay for, you know, some of the fees that they might incur while they're doing testing, or maybe if they're in a short-term program, they might have to do like a drug test or a background check that they have to pay for. And those $35 fees to me or to, you know, most anybody may seem nominal, but then if they have a thousand other things that they're paying for, if they're paying off a ticket or just, you know, some of the barriers and some of the hurdles that these youth jump, $35 is a lot of money. Could be. So for an organization like us to step in and be like, oh, that's fine. We've got you $35. So that's why it kind of depends on like how many we can serve in one year, just based on how much the young adult actually needs if they need like full blown, if they need to spend, you know, their full amount that we can actually allot for that certain program. All right. So you have these two areas where you provide some financial support for young people. Yes. And you said those were funded. Do you have any non-funded programs or services? So they're not directly funded. We don't have any like direct grants for those two programs, but our money that has, you know, that we've worked, we've had a couple of different galas. We just did a skeet shoot last week, a couple of weeks ago. So those kinds of things. And then our private funders are what fund those programs. Oh, I see. And then we also have the mentorship program and the life skills program. Those obviously don't require as much funding. That's just amazing volunteers who step in and do their thing. So they don't require as much funding. We do host events through the mentorship program. So that requires a little bit of money, but, you know, probably like two or 3000 a year. Whereas the other programs, we need full blown, like anywhere from 
if we had, you know, 150,000, we would be able to service so many more youth than what we can. We just do what we can with what we have. We do a lot of, you know, where I might hire someone to do something, I do it so that we can save on the cost for those particular programs, you know. So say if somebody needed a tutor and there was no way to get one through the college, rather than hiring a tutor or, you know, if we can't get a volunteer to do it, I can step in in that role. So that's where it helps with the funding piece. But we have definitely made do like I'm so surprised with everything we've been able to do with the money that we do have for 2023. Yeah, that's a skill that I think a lot of folks who work in nonprofits have is to make the dollar stretch. Yes. Oh my gosh, we're (laughs) masters, aren't we? (laughs) Absolute masters. Indeed. Well, how do you find the youth that you're working with and that you're serving? Are they referred to you? Is it peers referring their friends to you? How do you get your young people? It's a little bit of both. I would say we definitely have some peer-to-peer referrals. But a lot of our referrals come through either the school districts. We have two local school districts that really love us and that do refer their youth out to us as soon as, you know, even as close as we've started working with them when they age out in high school. And we've been able to say their counselors are immediately like, okay, you need to call this person and start learning about all your benefits. So we do receive referrals that way, as well as through the college system has been great, and then local churches as well. I can absolutely see the colleges and school districts valuing your education and career prep support, for sure. they do. They do, and we love them too. I mean, they've sent me referrals for students who still need their GEDs. You know, they come into college, they'll come into Lone Star College, and they're like, okay, I'm ready to start college, and they haven't even (laughs) obtained a diploma or a GED yet. And we actually work with a trauma-informed GED program. He's done a ton of research on the effects that trauma can have on education. And so from that, he has a GED program that he's been able to help us with. So we employ him to help our youth get their GED. So he's a contractor. He's got his own nonprofit but the fee is way less than what I would pay going through any other GED program. And he understands the trauma that these kids are going through or have gone through. And so he understands, you know, when he doesn't hear back from them immediately, it's not like an immediate write-off. It's like, no, your program has been paid for for the year. You're good. Let's just work through what you have going on right now. And then we'll pick this right back up where we left off. So yeah, between the school districts and the college system, yeah, they do. They love what we're doing. It gives them some extra. They don't always have the funds to do what they want to do for the young adults. So it's nice when we can step in and say, oh, we've got this. Like, just let us take it. Yeah, that is nice. Yes. So how do young people, how do I word this? How do they experience your programs? In other words, you find a young person they're referred to you, you've been connected. Do you have a sit down with them to find out what their needs are? And then you plug them into the program or services that best meet those needs? That would be my guess. Yes, that's exactly what we do. And where would you say the biggest need is when you're in the Houston area? So for the young people in your area, what would you identify as the biggest need when they're coming out of foster care? I definitely think the education and career prep program is most certainly our largest growing program. And I think that's because as soon as they learn the benefits that they receive, 
for being in foster care and how they have their in-state tuition waiver, they want to jump on it. They want to understand more. They want to receive all of the good benefits. So that's definitely our highest functioning program right now. I do think that transitional living is, I will say most everyone who taps into education and career prep also taps into transitional living. They just maybe didn't realize before that we had that program. So they come to us with the education need and they walk away with understanding that, oh, wow, if I am in a rut, I can get some assistance or I could receive a mentor. Like they just don't know sometimes the other services that we provide. And that's mainly because of our relationship with the college and with the school districts. Like that's immediately what they jump on is the education piece. But OAI can do so much more. So I think that as soon as the young adults in the Houston area start to learn about everything that we could provide them, then I think that we'll see a jump in the transitional living program initially. Like they'll come in for that service, but also mentorship and life skills. I do think that they truly want those things and they just don't know how to ask for them. Yeah. I mean, I would think so. Young people, and I remember I was in foster care and I aged out. I just wanted to do my own thing. Yes. But reality is that we do better when we have somebody who's walking beside us to help us out. Yes. So I think that's the struggle, right? They want their independence and they feel like that means doing it alone. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's what we try. And there's a quote from Josh Ship, And it's something that we try to live by at OAI. It's that every child is one caring adult away from success. I feel like it rings true to our mentorship program. And I tailor our mentorship program to where it's, I want the mentor to be exactly what that young adult needs. So I don't just want to pair up a male and a male Just because, you know, we have a male who needs a mentor and a male who needs a mentee. I won't ever do that. I do something called the mentor-mentee mingle. We try to host them four times a year. And the purpose of that event is to cultivate organic relationship between the mentors and the mentees. That way we're pairing up people who have similar interests. Maybe they speak the same language. Whatever the case may be, they have similar, you know, maybe they want to get a certain degree and that mentor has that degree or whatever the case is. That's how we try to function our mentor mentee program. Mm -hmm. And you don't require the young people to have a mentor in your program. No, I do not. They opt into that. Yes, it's totally optional for them. But do you see that desire growing Like, do you see more and more young people wanting to have a mentor if they're talking to their peers or like, oh, yeah, this is working really great for me with my mentor, then they might want one, too. I'm just wondering what the status is of your mentorship program as far as growth. Yes, I definitely see it. I think a lot of them come in not understanding exactly what a mentor is or, you know, maybe they've done mentorship programs before that maybe seemed a little too clinical to them. Or whatever. And so that's why I try to make it so different. I make it to where this is not a requirement. I want you to come to these events and just kind of hang out. And what I found is that when they come to the event, they generally walk away either having met someone that they want to mentor them or they're like, oh, the idea of this is really cool. So I do think that the desire is growing. Back when I was with the first organization that I was employed with, I don't think we saw that many who wanted a mentor. Whereas now, most everyone who fills out 
our form is saying, yes, I want a mentor. I do think the desire in general is growing. I think people understand the benefit of having a mentor. Is it because there are more and more mentorship programs out there, do you think? Because I've certainly seen over the last 10 years or so, the number of organizations that are being started up that provide services to young people aging out is definitely growing. Yes. And I just wonder if it's becoming just more common and therefore more acceptable. Yeah, I do think so. I think you're right on target with that because it's so, and people are defining it a little bit better than I think it's been defined in the past. I realize this is a broad brush. I know not everybody would have felt this way, but I feel that there may have been a time when people went into mentoring to try to save young people. Yes. And that mindset is changing to being more of a coach as opposed to a savior. I think because the mindset is changing, that might be contributing to the acceptance of it. Definitely. I totally agree with you. Yeah. Well, how do your mentors work with the young people? They find each other potentially at these mingles. Yes. And then what? Like, is there a curriculum that the mentors follow or is it very open and more social are they expected to help the young people like learn how to drive or whatever their goals might be? What's expected of your mentors and how do they work with the youth? Yeah, so that's kind of what makes our program a little bit different than some of the others is that we do let them establish their relationship. Some of them are very, you know, the young adult needs a lot of different things. And so their mentor does serve as that person who helps them obtain their driver's license or you know, make sure all their documents are in order. They work close. Sometimes they work closely with me to make sure that the young adult is meeting their goals. But then sometimes it really is just social. Like I've got some young adults who just have it very much together, at least, you know, on the surface and they've done everything they need to do to be as successful as possible. So with that, I'll say that You know, some of them are very, I just, you know, let's just hang out. Let's go have coffee once every two weeks or whatever. But then some are very in-depth and they need a little bit extra. Yeah. Well, that's all of us, right? (laughs) Yes, for sure. And some of us always will need that a little bit extra. (laughs) Yes. But especially young people coming out of foster care. I was very independent. I had my goal, which was to get a college degree. I was getting good grades. I was very, you know, self-motivating. And so I guess I was pretty easy. Yeah. As was my sister. And so I don't think there was much thought put into from the system's perspective as, you know, does Lynn need a mentor? Because like I had it, I was one of these kids that quote unquote had it together. And I did do well. And I have to say that I'm very fortunate and I'm very glad that I was that way. But I still think even if you have somebody who's very self-motivated and has goals and is working toward them, that having that mentor, having that person, even if you don't call them a mentor, having that adult, that supportive, caring adult be there to, you know, call and say, how do I use a laundry machine again? Yes. (laughs) You know, whatever those little questions might be, that's the kind of thing that even the real independent young people could absolutely use. Most definitely. And that's why I tell my mentors all the time that I don't want to put parameters on how you shape your relationship with your mentee. 
I want you guys to establish what works best for you. Like, because maybe they do. I know I had, like, I had to call my mom and ask her how to do laundry when I was in college. So what's to say that, (laughs) that anything would be different for them, you know? So I love just the way that our mentors are able to establish how they function, their relationship with each other. And we also have mentor touch base too. So they kind of get to learn from each other on this is how my relationship with my mentee is going. How is yours going? And so they kind of get to like touch base and take notes and, you know, what works, what doesn't work, why doesn't it work? What makes your mentee different from my mentee? I think that that helps the mentorship program too. Oh, sure. And how often do you have those? We try to do those about once a month. It's a very new concept. It's still growing, but the when our mentorship program started growing like back in June or July, that was every single mentor. I was shocked because I had never heard that before, but every single mentor was like, do you guys have a way that the mentors can touch base? And I was like, no, but we can because that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. It's kind of like a support group. I that has a negative connotation, but you learn tips and tricks from each other and you get ideas of activities and strategies. And I think I like it. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, I think so too. It really works for them. They get to know each other and it's kind of like they have their own little mentor mentee relationship going on too. (laughs) Yeah. So that's always fun too. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, actually time is flying. I'm enjoying this conversation so much, but I wanted to get into your life skills a little bit more before we move on to talking about the foster care system in general. Okay. So maybe you could help us understand what is involved with your life skills program. And you said that was a volunteer program, but so what are they doing? Yeah. So all of that is tailored exactly to the needs of the person that we're serving. For example, sometimes we work in local group homes with ages 14 and older. This is an opportunity for them to learn, you know, your basic life skills, the cooking, how to clean certain things, what's a good routine, how do you time manage, all of the things that, you know, we may consider basic just to prepare them for when they age out. We also do things like college applications and how do you fill out, you know, rental agreements and applications for apartments and all of those things. So the older they get, the more in depth we get. And that's particular to the group home. But as far as life skills for our older youth who have already aged out, kind of what we do is just, it's almost a part of their plan. And when I say plan, what I mean is I try and give them like two or three items at a time to be working on. That's kind of what I consider case management without using the word case management. I don't want to use that word to describe what we do because it isn't. It's just a plan. It's something that's helping set them up for success. So whether that be, you know, I need you to complete A, B, and C in order to obtain your ETV, the education and training voucher, which is additional funding that they can receive while they're working or in school. Sometimes their plan is that. Sometimes it's just three items. So either their mentor or me work on that plan with them. And so sometimes we consider that life skills. Like how do we work on your computer to make all of these things make sense to where we can get all of this put into an email and sent over to the ETV coordinator so we can get it turned in. So that's sometimes how life skills looks for some of our older youth. With them, we don't really say, oh, hey, we're going to do a life skills class. We'll just, we kind of 
work it into the conversations that we're already having with them, but I just ensure that they get something out of it. That's kind of how we work the life skills program when they've already aged out. But when we work in the group homes and if, you know, if we start working with some of the school districts, we like to do the basic essential life skills classes. And we do have a curriculum of different modules that we can do. And some of our group homes require that the youth check those boxes. And that's great because then, you know, it's something that we can go and say, yes, we did this, 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 and this. Whereas some just, they're like, hey, if you can come every two weeks and do a class, then that's great. But we've done things like just, you know, how to notice if you're being trafficked, how to recognize if you're in a bad relationship, how do you put together a simple budget, but then how do you plug in all your bills and all of that good stuff. So we've done everything from cooking classes to some of the more in-depth life skills. Yeah. There's so many life skills. So many, yes. <laughs> and even those of us not, I would say those of us, I was in foster care, but those you know, young folks who come out of non-fostered situations, we're always learning life skills, right? We learn so much just by trial and error and doing. You can't learn everything <laughs> Oh, yeah, by the time you're 18. Yes. But unfortunately, young people in foster care do have a disadvantage unless they're in you know, one of these group homes that you or organizations like yours are doing to help them, that so many young people in foster parent situations and so forth, they're not being taught these skills. And so they come out with a deficit. Definitely. It's just so challenging because there's just basic taking care of yourself, safety, finances. And then you start talking about education, life skills, career life skills, how to acquire a job, how to maintain a job, housing life skills, how to find an apartment, how to how to upkeep an apartment. You know, don't let the toilet run because then the water bill is going to go up. Who gets taught that when they're young? That's something that we're often, we just learn by trial and error and mistake. So it's just, it's a challenging thing to do. And I always admire programs that have a curriculum of some kind, some approach to helping young people shore up those gaps. Absolutely. I do too. And that was very important to Tina, who started OAI, that we continue that life skills portion. And we knew we would when we had to reframe the program a little bit back in the beginning of this year, actually, in January of 2023, we had to reframe the program just a little bit just to get her, just to get the vision back to where she initially had it. Because COVID kind of threw the organization for a loop. And we had to, you know, reframe things after, after, you know, we hired me as staff, we did have to do some things to kind of put us back on track. And that was one of the most important things to her was that we continue the life skills curriculum and not just to youth who had aged out, but those who were near aging out as well. And that's ideal to start yes. working with young people, even in middle school. Yes, To help is. them learn life skills. I mean, just to wait until they're 18. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how in the world could they possibly catch up? Oh, yeah. And then to have to like retain all of that information, there's just no way that, I mean, I couldn't do it. If somebody threw 10,000 different life skills at me the second I turned 18, I would be like, well, this isn't fun. This is not what I expected. <laughs> right. And it's usually best to teach the skills when you're doing the thing that you're learning. Yes. Right. So that you can practice it. So sitting in a classroom situation, even though it's, you know, sometimes it's all you can do, 
If you're going to be in like a group home situation, my picture is if you're teaching them how to do laundry, go to the laundry machine. You know? Yes. Do a load with the kids and, you know, or have them do it. That's the way to teach is so that they can practice what you're teaching. Yes. Well, my goodness, I could go on and on about life skills, but I do see that our time is coming to a close. And I did want to spend at least a few minutes talking about how can the foster care system improve how young people are being prepared for adulthood, particularly those young people in foster care who will be aging out. What do you think? What could the foster care system, whether that's federal, state, local, what do you think the foster care system could do better? So my thought, and you've done a great job of this at Aging Out Institute, is you have so many phenomenal resources that are statewide, nationwide, citywide, all of the things. You have so many great resources. Tap into them. Let the nonprofits step in and help do the hard work because, and, you know, just speaking directly to those who work in foster care. You're on the front lines. You can't do it all. So my thought is just let some of us nonprofits come get to know us, meet us. We want to help you. We want to assist you. We want to make the transition seamless. And that's one of the reasons that we decided to serve ages 14 and up is that we we would love to walk with a young adult from the time they're a child at 14 to when they age out at 18, because if they continue to have the knowledge of the resources that are available to them, they will do so much better when they age out. I have no doubt. Oh, I agree completely. Is there an opportunity to potentially somehow partner social workers with nonprofits in their area? You know what I mean? Yes. Because I would imagine that we can help the social workers' lives be better. Yes by providing services and such to young people that they're working with. And then there's that communication aspect from the social worker side where they can be sharing with the nonprofits key information, you know, within reason of confidentiality, but key information that they might need to know regarding that young person. So I'm just throwing that out there. Is is that a possibility? Yeah, I definitely think it's a possibility. I would love to see it happen in Houston I'd love to see it happen nationwide and just give us the opportunity to do what we do best so that you can do what you do best. I do think there's a ton of, yeah, like you said, I think there's a ton of opportunity. And just think about how many young people who are going into social work and they dive into their jobs and they have no clue what nonprofits and services are out in their community. Yes, And they're working with young people, but they don't know how to direct them. And they learn, one would hope, over time. But how can we help the young people who are going into the field be better prepared with the knowledge about what services and programs are out there? I think that there might be some way to work with social work departments at colleges. Yeah, that's true. Get them young. (laughs) Somehow expose these young people who are getting their social work degrees, MSWs, what have you, somehow get them exposed, whether it's through fairs or whatever, exposed to the different nonprofits in their area so they know when they have a young person who has a need that they could match them with a nonprofit. I love that idea. And you know, some of the youth that you and I work with that have aged out of care often go into social work. Mm -hmm, So that's what makes it even better is then they understand they already understand what has happened to other youth who have experienced foster care, as well as what they're experiencing when they're aging out. 
Mm -hmm. So there's breaking down some of that learning barrier too. Yeah, I think there's so many possibilities and ways that we could better support these young people as they're approaching 18 or 21, depending on your state, to be ready for adulthood. And I don't mean by on their own or alone, right? Yeah. It's interdependence versus independence. Yeah. I believe that's interdependence is the word that some programs use. Yes. In other words, you're independent, but with a relationship with a caring, supportive adult. Yes. Wouldn't it be better if you have more than one caring, supportive adult? Yes. We have a social worker, a CASA, nonprofit leaders, right? Or volunteers, mentors, have a whole network around these young people. Yeah. I love the idea of a network that, you know, that you create when they're 15 or 14. And then that network just continues to follow them. That's the ideal world, right? It really is. And getting teachers involved or at least counselors at the school, somebody there to be part of that network. I just, I mentioned this in another podcast. I wish there was some way to share information about these youth among these particular types of roles in their life. But because of confidentiality, there's really nothing online that could be done that would make that information available to everybody. But I just think that communication and having that solid network or foundation of all these adults holding them up, it would be so much better. Yeah, it would. And actually, our local school district, which is Klein ISD, they do have a program called the Surrogate Parent Program. Yeah. And those parents, that surrogate parent sits in with a youth who's in foster care. They sit in on all of their ARD meetings that they have with the special education department. And then they also get to communicate with the teachers so that not only does that child have their foster parents or their group home parents that are caring for them, but also a surrogate parent who maybe comes in and has lunch with them once every two weeks and they attend their ARD meetings and they're available whenever, you know, if the teacher is having an issue, that's who they'll contact. So I think that having things like that, that intertwine and just continue to intertwine as that child gets older and as they do begin the transition from foster care to the world outside of foster care would be so critically important. And we would, our success rates in schools in, you know, as another nonprofit, we'll, all of our numbers will go up if that young person can find people to connect with the older that they get. Yeah, no doubt. And the chances of them succeeding, of course, will likewise yes. go up. I mean, they go hand in hand. Absolutely. So I think that's the answer. Somehow having a network, people who are already in the young person's life and people who are stepping in to try to help them as they leave foster care or preparing to leave foster care. I think that network concept is really the way to go. But the question is, how is it done? But we won't solve that today. (laughs) Not today. Maybe next time, though. (laughs) Next time. We'll get it all figured out. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I see that it is time, unfortunately, for us to close our conversation. But Nicole, thank you so much for sharing about your background and your journey, as well as your organization, OAI. I look forward to watching you as you grow and finding out about how your young people are doing moving forward. So maybe we can wrap back around someday and and have an update. Awesome. Yeah, I would love to do that. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. We're very happy to. Well, for those of you who have listened to the end, thank you very much. 
We put out a podcast every couple of weeks or so. You can find them on our website, agingoutinstitute.org, and just look for that podcast button in the menu. Or you can find us on pretty much any podcast platform that's out there. Just look for Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time.